0: Hey gang, Josh here. We've got a very unique episode today, and I wanted to give a few words ahead of time. Part of this project has been to bring an analysis of political economy to the art world and aesthetics of our time. Rather than simply taking artists' intentions at their word, I've tried to look at the external political and economic factors that shape creative production. The other major part of this project has been to take dissident political narratives seriously and investigate them for any kernels of truth that we might use to refine our own understanding on the progressive left. When we discuss fringe internet subcultures, I've always tried to do responsible platforming, and to debunk conspiracy theories where appropriate. But tonight, we're going to look at a fascinating story that I truly do not know what to make of. The deeper I look, the more questions I have. Between 1991 and 2000, George Soros funded a multitude of contemporary art centers in Eastern Europe. 20 centers across 20 capital cities. Riga, Latvia, Tallinn, Estonia, Vilnius, Lithuania, St. Petersburg and Moscow in Russia, Almaty, Kazakhstan, Kiev, Ukraine, Warsaw in Poland, Prague, Batislava, Budapest, Ljubljana, Zagreb, Belgrade, Sarajevo, Bucharest, Odessa, and many, many others. Against the backdrop of a recently dissolved Soviet Union, these societies are in various degrees of economic crises and social chaos, but now bear witness to many elaborately funded avant-garde spectacles of contemporary art. In particular, there is an extraordinary work entitled Voices of Love by Arsen Savidov and Georgi Shevchenko in 1994, with some striking political overtones that seems to have been staged exclusively for the Western media. My guest, curator Aaron Moulton, suspects that these works may have been an elaborate form of PR to signal to the U.S. the open embrace of liberal values in these previously closed societies. My own opinion is that it seems likely that the Soros Centers for Contemporary Art created the unique conditions for socially engaged practice and certain forms of media art to emerge in a society struggling to adapt to a new economic order. Anecdotally, this story seems almost entirely unknown, and very little information about the centers is available online. Many of the previous curators don't even include it on their CVs. And honestly, no one I've talked to even seems to be aware of it. Art allows for a very rare and radical space in society in which many unpredictable things can happen. Philanthropy is often benevolent, but sometimes it is not. Private donors that are not accountable to any public should always be questioned. I think it's a bridge too far to say that all of these artworks were an elaborate psyop aimed to shift the perceptions of a previously communist society. But at the same time, all contemporary art is just propaganda out in the open. We only tend to realize it once we are able to step outside the particular ideology of our time. This is the story of the Soro Centers for Contemporary Art.
1: My name is Aaron Moulton. I'm a, I'm a curator I'm based in Los Angeles, but I really see what I do truly as a, a form of experimental anthropology. But I uh, have worked within the industry throughout various different powerful kind of aspects of it. So I, I ran Flash Art Magazine. I was editor there for two years. And then I've been the in-house curator at Gagosian Gallery, doing exhibitions for their global brand at all the different branches. I, I ran the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art in Salt Lake City, I was a senior curator there. But um, this story really is rooted in my work that r- relates to journalism. I was, a, like I said, editor of Flash Art International, and I kind of discovered this network for myself. And then later, I, I started a gallery. I had a, a commercial art gallery in Berlin that was like an experimental curatorial project. but I. The aim of it was uh, a kind of an aspirational belief in the markets that were coming out of Eastern Europe that were funded and supported by the SCCA network, and so I really have a very close, close relationship with all of these senior people who were a part of this network and the big kind of biennial artists that came out of it, and uh, so it's it's a near and dear subject to my heart that I've followed for seventeen years. So yeah,
0: let me throw you a question that is, I think, very introductory, but for people who are not familiar. Who is George Soros? Who is he as an individual, and who is he as a bit of folklore? Yeah, I mean,
1: he's the boogeyman. That's how we have to talk about him. He is only allowed to be uh, seen as a boogeyman or someone who is perceived as a boogeyman. So he's really uh, kind of exists only within this folkloric echo chamber of how perception is managed. And then what does he do? Who is he? I mean, he's an incredible, uh, he's a legend. He's an oracle. Uh, in the positive sense of the boogeyman. And he's uh, somebody who's had this ability to very clairvoyantly meddle in markets or understand markets and push uh, and, and move Society and monetary policy and finances and uh, culture and countries and politics and everything and he is uh, an extraordinary extraordinary human being. Uh, I very much look up to his uh, everything he represents because he is this true anomaly of somebody who could come in and and literally change the wind. You know, he runs the greatest NGO that ever existed on planet Earth called the Open Society Institute, most powerful NGO ever, and that's where our story comes from. And he's had a an incredibly important and extremely undervalued influence in Eastern Europe, uh, especially when we only hear about it through the the political advertising of Viktor Orban in Hungary and how he's villainized. Everyone's like, what's wrong? He just tried to bring democracy. And you know, the truth of that is so different and it's so naive. And he's an incredibly influential force that is unfortunately kind of getting uh, some critical thinking put back on him.
0: You have spent the last few years looking into the history of the Soros Centers for Contemporary Art.
1: The, the Soros Center for Contemporary Art Network originates as the Soros Fine Art and Documentation Archive, uh, the Soros Foundation Fine Art and Documentation Archive, which is founded in 1987 in, in Budapest. In around 91, evolves into the Soros Center for Contemporary Art. They adopt the name contemporary art. And that becomes the first one. And the adoption of the name contemporary is through this amazing visionary who is completely erased from history books named Susie Masoli. And she manages to somehow convince George Soros to create more of these centers, the basic function of them, the Soros Foundation Fine Art Documentation Archive, the function of it was as an archive. So it was going to be a place that during the closed society, during communism and, and the Soviet Union, these uh, these contextual frames are so important, we have to put them back on for a minute. Freedom of expression existed purely for the uh, uh, aspirations of the state. And so you had all creative practice, funneled towards marketing, essentially of a state ideology.
0: Artists were literally making postage stamps. Like that was the extent of creative expression. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's, you have uh, it's, it's socialist realism. And of course we understand that to be a very limited way to communicate. And I'm being diplomatic. It's, of course, hyper oppressive. So uh, the SCCA, the the previous iteration of it, the Documentation Archive Center, was there to collect uh, and preserve information about unofficial art, about nonconformist art. There's all these names for it. Radical art, we would probably call it today or something, but it's like art that's unrecognized by the states and does not conform to the state. And so the 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 archive is operating in relationship uh, relation to the Open Society Institute, which is this extremely enormous and very complex NGO network. And the SCCA becomes this really radical vehicle. So to wrap up the formation of the centers, the Documentation Center becomes the SCCA in 1991, and then in 1992 they start to mushroom. You get the one in Prague, the one in uh, Warsaw, and uh, one other one. And then in 93, it's just (laughs) And then 94, and then in 96, there's like five more that appear, and then the last one is Almaty, Kazakhstan, in uh, 1998, I believe it opens. And so this distance that we're talking about is one and a half times the United States of America, and 20 capitals: Belgrade, Bucharest, Tallinn, Vilnius. All overnight received a an asymmetrically more powerful art world that arrived and became the dominant form of expression and then they arrived in this hyper vulnerable moment in time when the state systems were falling apart in shambles soviet unions collapsed and so there's all this effort to decentralize and so one of the ways they
0: do that is with art so this is where it first strikes me as uncharacteristic because i think most people will be familiar with open society this is the largest ngo in the world they do everything but that activity is pretty much restricted to the political sphere, the economic sphere. far as I'm familiar, they're not really involved in art. And my understanding is that Soros himself is not a particularly big fan of art. His wife, if I'm correct, is an art historian actually, but he's not really a collector or very interested in it. So deploying this amount of capital dropped into an economy that is in uh, complete disarray. The societies are crumbling, various economic and social crises. So it's just an extraordinary amount of funding to begin with. But in contrast to the state of the societies at that time, it is really substantial. How do you think he is convinced to deploy this amount of money into the art sphere.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I want to address this right away, because I think it's an important thing. This story can get lost easy in all these amazing details. And a lot of what we experience when we look at George Soros generally is what's called the halo effect. You know, he's such a radical philanthropist that you're like, how could you possibly see anything bad happening here uh, when you see all this good? But I want to start right away and say, I don't believe that this was ever about art. I think we're talking about something very different, and art is this way in which it's presented. Uh, I want to say that from the beginning. This is a social engineering experiment, and they have understood art as a radical communication technology in a way different than we've maybe ever looked at it as humans. Uh, They've seen it right straight away, probably the way the Soviet Union saw socialist realism, but with a little trick that you could do this through the freedom of expression. Uh, you could trick people into doing this for democracy, and uh, and of course uh, that what I just described sounds totally so fucking nefarious because it's not. There is this thing that's happening where they are actually working very hard to preserve lost culture and to find artists who are willing to think outside the box. So what is it about art? You know, art is a communication technology, and it sits there right alongside the internet and telecommunications and other forms of expression. We as humans naively put it with music and theater and and theater and uh art, you know theater serves a lot of political purposes and music serves a lot of political purposes but not enough not really art is this go-between uh language of very unresolved indeterminate qualities that have has the power to communicate in ways that we have really never figured out properly as humans nobody fucking knows what art is it's a lot of like speculative like consensual reality and no one really can tell you, and I'll tell you it's voodoo, you know, it's, it's literally legit magical space that we've just managed to name in these particular ways, because it's safer that way. But it's actually where we permit magical shit to happen, propaganda, all kinds of stuff. And I think they understood something radical about the potential of art as a vehicle for communication, and, uh, and then turned the dials.
0: Yeah, I always like to say that art is the field that doesn't abide by the disciplines of any other professional field. So yeah, there's these tremendous possibilities in it. And uh, that is both its strength and its weakness at various times. In your catalog essay, you describe some of the works that came out of this space, being a form of limit testing. Would you give us an example of one of these artworks so people can understand the context of these transitional societies and the type of work that people were making at the time?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to not talk about artworks. I'm going to talk about curatorial projects. I think we're talking about a very experimental new form of curating. And so I'll tell you two examples.
0: Many of them are not objects even. Many of them are performance related and uh, ephemeral happenings of sorts. They're interventions,
1: they're tactical, they're uh, they're more situational than anything else. And many of these exhibitions, no one really ever saw them. I think you have to keep that in mind. They're like these things that were extremely well-funded and have the fucking most incredible catalogs you've ever seen, and there was no show. No one saw it. For me, the two biggest anomalies of this story is the birth of curatorial practice as a as an institutionalized phenomenon, and the birth of socially engaged practice. In these situations, you're having every Soros Center for Contemporary Art, all twenty of them, once a year, did a SCCA annual exhibition, which was open call, very democratic, and you would uh, produce art based on what that uh, open call wanted, and then. The limit testing comes in where I see essentially a new form of socially engaged practice, years more in advance than where it happens for us in the West, unlike anything we've ever seen in terms of understanding the power of activism in art. And you essentially see in an exhibition like Polyphony, it's the art of bureaucracy. You're looking at a lot of projects that are about uh, how to understand bureaucracy in this transitory, very vulnerable environment. and But we're talking about uh, also a very wide use of what is art in the public space. So like advertising, I mean, advertising is essentially new. The Soviet Union just collapsed. All kinds of different imaginations of social and public space were taken on by this. So that is the most important main show. And then there's another show that I think we can focus later on, but it's this Alchemic Surrender. It's about this exhibition on a battleship. But both of these are most the most insane backflips of bureaucracy that you can ever imagine, like like bureaucracy as art.
0: I wonder if we could talk about that battleship performance, actually, just so people can have a really vivid image of the kind of artworks that we're describing. Cause these are things that are quite extensive. They're well funded, they're choreographed. There's images of an entire cruise ship of sailors going through these elaborate rituals and desecrating this old Soviet battleship. It sounds like performance art, it also sounds like psyop. (laughs) It's, it's quite a, uh, it's quite a unique form of art compared to making postage stamps five years ago. Um, maybe you could describe that performance for us. So people have a, a more vivid image of the quality and the style of work that was coming out of these centers.
1: Something we, uh, have to also think about 20 centers, each one of them once a year, did an annual exhibition that produced maybe 20 artworks. So this is a new kind of uh, deployment of art funding, right? Uh, That already is so so mind-blowing when we think of the geography.
0: In the scale of the Ministry of Culture for any of these uh, nations at the time, would you say that the SCCA was probably comparable to the total amount of funding that they were deploying? Was it larger even?
1: The numbers range from each country. So you have to really, all these do need to be treated case by case. But Sergei Helme, who's the SCCA director from Tallinn, who's now like runs the main State Museum, she uh, is quoted always saying it was eight times the budget of
0: Estonia's like cultural budget. It's like astroturfing an entire art scene onto a country.
1: Yeah, this is important. This is really an important thing to realize. Also, the other thing is state funding went towards the artist union. Studios, materials—you know—there's a whole different way in which production was imagined. Where in this case, none of these artists had their studio environment paid for through the SCCA. They were suddenly in a precariat of like, I have to apply if I want to hedge my bets and in getting into the global art world, and I'll get the grant, and then I'll hopefully get the book, and then I'll get in the show, and they put them in the uh, the rat race essentially. Because nobody, no, there's not a single artist from the SCCA legacy who made money. They all put themselves on the front lines. In a way sold out to their communities to do the western thing and uh, and are the great artists of their countries because of that they are the greatest uh, you know it's but you have to consider the dualism the reality they
0: continue to live in it's a fascinating contrast yeah because you see the state facilitating the material production of these discrete artworks of drawings and lithographs and all types of things that people would make in a studio and then there's this huge amount of funding that goes into these elaborate happenings. I kind of took you off track there. Would you tell us about this battleship performance? This is a really essential example, I think.
1: And this is my favorite exhibition in the history of curatorial practice, par excellence. This is it. It is curated by Marta Kutzma, who is the dean, until recently, was the dean of arts at Yale. So that really gives you a sense of, of this pyramid of influence and the legacy of it in terms of, you know, Marta was the first director of the SCCA Kiev, of course, a very important city for us right now. She's on the ground there from 92, 93, and she's the only SCCA person who was flown in. They were all otherwise sourced locally. And she does one exhibition prior to this one we're talking about, which is not an interesting one. And then she does this thing called Alchemic Surrender, which happens not in Kiev, but in the recently demilitarized Crimean Sea where you have the recently, the Navy of the Soviet Union. So this is a Navy that's just been split up. And now there's suddenly next to each other, a Russian Navy uh, battleship and a Ukrainian battleship. And maybe, you know, a Georgian battleship suddenly all in this weird, you know, what is Sevastopol and Crimea? I mean, that's like for the Black Sea, that's going to be Manhattan in terms of all the different cosmopolitan naval shit that's going to be happening. And so you suddenly have this very divided and recently demilitarized zone. They somehow... Got uh, control of a live battleship called the battleship Slavuch, which was a Ukrainian battleship. And I've spoken to uh, Marta a bit about it. Marta has never gone on record to talk about this show, it should be said. She's never given a proper interview about it. There's no real documentation of her words in relationship to this. And basically, what happens is they take, uh, they get carte blanche to have total control of this battleship. And, uh, and it's a live battleship. There are still the occupants, which is the admiral and the, the naval officers. And they uh, managed to convince these people to do, honestly, radical cultural exorcism experiments where the one artist, Ilya Chichkan, who's like the Maurizio Catalan of Ukraine, He brings on these baby cadavers from a museum that are for mutant babies. Uh, It's a museum that's got like reliquaries and it's like kids that have been affected by radioactivity. Uh, But they installed these baby bodies inside the portal windows. So you had like almost like this floating body in this window and uh, the, the the real project that should be celebrated though is the one you kind of refer to as the ritual. And it's from, it's from Arsen Savadov and uh, Georgie Shevchenko and it's called Voices of Love. And they basically were able to commandeer almost the total power structure and get all these guys to dress in tutus and to fetishize equipment. And it's, there's something that's, it's arguably sexual, but it's awkwardly non asexual and obviously there's this kind of uh, like uh, this kind of gay vibe to it where you're like you know that this is so heavy what it means to do this to these guys and 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 to completely collapse their power structure and you know and there's even these moments there's a beautiful moment of them like you know having a, a big celebratory dinner and like doing the sacrament of cheersing and i look at that and i think man i have Got to believe even a gesture as innocent as that has flattened power structures, and uh, and it's, it's and that film it's a three channel film it's the most amazing like fever dream of uh, you know just seeing this what we can imagine is your fantasy of this experience and and they give it to you and uh, and it just feels like this incredible thing and it's and it, and that work is seen as really the most important Ukrainian work of contemporary art uh, ever you know Viktor Pinchuk has it it's like the real cornerstone of of the new art.
0: That is a fascinating story because one imagines in the context of a disintegrating authoritarian regime, getting the soldiers to dress up in tutus and caress the armaments on the battleship and act in this very submissive sexual way around all these weapons is uh, quite an extraordinary thing to happen. It's also, it's beyond analogy at this point because you've literally appointed an artist in command of the bodies of the soldiers, that they are giving orders yeah. to them as performers. Some of these things are maybe an interesting metaphor and then it's a practical implementation of I tell you what to do and I am in charge now. All of those things are, are quite interesting.
1: This exhibition, Alchemic Surrender, existed for two days. All this effort, all these power structures that are just getting like blown into something new at this point. Uh, For this to only happen for two days, and for it to be claimed to be the SCCA annual exhibition, uh, which is the big thrust of what this thing does. I mean, uh, and it's in a recently demilitarized zone where journalists were not allowed. The New York Times was brought in to do a splash of photography and just show the power of contemporary art, the power of the West. I don't think anyone saw this
0: show there wasn't a live audience that's the thing that's so absurd about it maybe not absurd but is just it's astounding because when one makes an art performance there is some audience there to bear witness to it but instead it seems like an elaborate performance staged exclusively for the press to demonstrate to the western media what is happening in the disintegration of the soviet union so this is okay the um the open calls the mission statements of the scca centers There's some explicit language in there that they have no intention to fund political art. Yeah. What you just described sounds like the exact opposite of that statement. Through that lens, it seems very clear why an NGO would be interested to facilitate all of these things. And they don't have any previous involvement in art. And then, well, maybe it is an elaborate pr stunt or something like that i wonder if you could tell us about the explicit mission statements and the language that they used and how they treated political art in general during this period
1: yeah i mean you know really the thing that we're going to get caught up in here is uh they're talking about this dualistic thing right there's um they're talking about the right wing and communism they're not talking about them the way they see themselves is anti-political or apolitical. They're, uh, they're just offering a great service. And so they don't, I think they've managed to convince themselves that this isn't political because it's not nationalistic and it's not, you know, left communist, And so they, they somehow managed to evade definition in this early naive period of neoliberalism essentially fucking taking over and have this ability to say that and it be true. In that well, sense. by
0: their own by by their own description, but uh, anybody who describes themselves as not political is either disingenuous or unaware of their motivations, right? Like everything is political. All sources of funding, all materials it's it's embedded everywhere. But okay, it's uh well, it's an interesting rhetorical choice on their part. There
1: was a contract that I found. It was from the SCCA Kishinev in Moldova. And I've tried to verify this across archives. And so the, the contract essentially says that the artists who receive this money, this money shall not be used for political purposes or influencing political campaigns or for promoting any political agenda or, or, or operating in any sense as propaganda. And so it's very, it's this very clear way in which the, it's the open society protecting itself uh, in case their intentions ever get audited. So they've got this document that says, hey, man, we told the artists not to do political art, but we... You know, we can't control the free will of the people, my man. So they have this amazing out. In this case, here with the open call, you're already, as an artist, trying to do things that are in very specific adherence to their what they want, and then they uh, decide which projects are best. So there's so many layers in which this is no longer the artist's work. You know, the artist is essentially a medium in that way.
0: What are some of the themes that are used for these open calls?
1: polyphony in uh, hungary which was this first socially engaged practice show even the subtitle of the exhibition is social consciousness as medium and so they're kind of out with it right away that that's what they're playing with this is the open call for the first what's going to be the first big important show they've done a couple of shows in budapest before a very important conference that you've referenced the villain Flusser lecture from And so uh, here's the open call that went out in February of 1993. It says The range of social and political themes which may serve as the content of the submitted works extends to, but is not restricted to, the following the transformations of power, broadly defined, the reevaluation of social roles, expectations, customs, and systems of value, the tensions of collective belonging and dispersal, orientation in the new objective ideological emotional and temporal environment transformations of sexual and gender relations a mapping of geographical social and institutional spaces the adequacy or inadequacy of the cultural linguistic and symbolic means available in this changed reality a sense of responsibility for human and environmental resources the problems of processing a private and shared past present and future and the social and public role of fine arts in answering challenges like the above
0: that sounds very political to me. Really specific.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wild. There's a pedagogical component to some of these centers, right? There's a yeah. school for the history and theory of art. How extensive is the education network attached to the SCCA?
1: So the OSI it does have an entire education initiative that's completely re- reformatting schools, you know, bringing in The first time people are seeing computers or the internet, all this stuff, uh, there's a complete reworking of society. And so with the SCCA, it's not so much that there's like a school that you went to. Later, later, the SCCA in uh, Ljubljana, for example, became a curating school. And so very much, yes, you were a part of a sort of a lineage of uh, the pedagogy. But generally, the, the pedagogical aspects of this are off the cuff and in the moment. So they kind of arrive through the open call. Because they wanted you to not only embrace those themes, but embrace a new media uh, technology as well. And that could be, in the case of polyphony, literally anything. They had they hacked phones, they hacked billboards, they hacked everything. My other favorite case study exhibition is Ex Oriente Lux in, uh, in Bucharest. And they basically realized they had no reply from the open call. Nobody was interested. And the open call was but it's essentially about embracing new technology phenomena and they didn't have anyone come forward. And so they decided in August, you have your show happening in in November. They decided in August that they need to fly in experts to help get these people up to speed and understanding what contemporary art is, what video art is. And so it's a big crash course with some greats, you know, some really of the time, great luminaries, But there's also these there's an incredible you know list within that list, which are the people that I don't really see as art people, (laughs) and uh, they're more ideologues and philosophers and tactical media theoreticians, and it's these guys who are really for me where this whole story becomes very interesting. Uh, But anyways, Keiko and Garrett organized this amazing uh, pedagogical experience where they're essentially like showing people Bill Viola and Barbara Kruger and blah 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 and. And getting people up to speed and uh but then there's something else i think that we're not aware of that's on the technical side of production you know we're talking about artists some of whom dropped their paintbrush to pick up a computer mouse they're not it wasn't their natural thing to go and do social engaged practice or make a virtual environment you know with the technology that was light years advanced of what they were ever going to get naturally in poor country like Romania, I always have to remind people the Arthur C. Clarke quote, any advanced form of technology is indecipherable from magic. And so this, these guys were basically given the magician's wand and then told how to wield it. And so this, this pedagogical environment happens in August. And then it happens again in November when they also bring in this guy, Egon Buna, who works for the ZKM, the Centrum uh, Medium, which is founded by Peter Weibel, also very connected to this thing in the beginning. So they bring in a technical production person who, who really helps, you know, guide the hands of these people in making the art. It's their art. But it's like there's there's so many aspects of that that are unheard of in a creative process.
0: So much of this story is unknown. You've anticipated, I think, a piece of my next question is I wanted to ask you about the lineage of some of these works today. It's very it's a very unusual story um, in such a consolidated, such a tight time frame. Because usually, what institutions are very concerned with is preserving not just the work that they archive and collect, but preserving their own legacy. So, for him to pull the plug on funding and for all of this to evaporate, and then for there to be so little documentation and stories and just, I think, general awareness that any of these things happened, it seems odd, right? That is part of what leads one to believe that it may have been a politically motivated uh, source of funding. Where do these works show up today? Are they collected by institutions? You had mentioned the Pinchuk Center. Are these artists now influential? Were they successful in canonizing the artists whose, work, whose works they produced? Or has it evaporated into the ether?
1: The artist unions continue to exist. And for most of the population, that's still the real deal. But uh, there's, these are binary art worlds, essentially, that still, in many cases, the artist union culture still exists. And so, so you have this, this system that's very uh, divided. And uh, and you have it happening that um, all of this coincides with the gentrification of uh, the global art world with biennials. The 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 birth of the biennial is happening right now. I mean, the biennials are existing, of course, for years. Like San Paulo, Venice, uh, Documenta, these have all been, of course, the mainstays of uh, the, the you know of of the elite contemporary art world. But suddenly it happens in the mid '90s that and you have uh, and it just is this uh, hyperbolic kind of uh, curve it goes from, uh, you know, up until like the mid 2000s when the art fairs take off.
0: This is part of the process of globalization as well. Staging a biennial in your country was a way of embracing those ideals and being part of a global society.
1: That's the biggest problem with this story. It's always treated in the, the passive tone, the passive tense of like the Soros Centers helped facilitate a natural transition. Uh, They were just a part of, or a steward to, or a basic witness, because they were just there to document uh, uh, what was going on. And that's, of course, not true. They are the change agent that are, in many cases, making everything happen of what we consider to be the globalization of the art world. They knew about Manifesta years before Manifesta was called Manifesta. It was called the uh, International... European art manifestation or some bullshit in the, in the, uh, the secret procedures manual thing that they were circulating in 92. So you have already a knowledge that there's going to be this biennial moment, um, that, and because manifesta is essentially uh, works from the model of the SCCA. It's an open call is only set up to do really radical forms of institutional critique in, uh, hot spaces, hot, culturally hot, sacred spaces. And so you ultimately have a thing that's uh, the, uh, the baton pass, and the early years of Manifesta were a shoe-in. If you were a part of the Soros system, you were a shoe-in to Manifesta, and you were a shoe-in to Documenta, and you were probably a shoe-in to represent your country in Venice.
0: Some of these elaborate artworks are staged to provoke a response from their audiences. Is there anything in the catalog of these works that elicits a very negative response from the public? Is there even a large enough public that bears witness to these works to meaningfully respond to something?
1: The one thing I will say is uh, I have heard this in different forums from four different countries, uh, representative of this story, that this shit landed there like a UFO. That is literally the words used. The socially engaged practice thing, the new media stuff, it was all just like this was not us and a lot of people saw that a lot of people were like you are selling out you know because this is not us the other important detail is the media network that's connected to this because again the open society is it's a the biggest most prolific publisher of the former soviet union that alone is huge but then think about all the different new newspapers and magazines and tv channels that were funded by the OSI. So they had complete access to uh, uh, essentially, you know, splash perception with all this positive feedback. But yes, there are, of course, people that don't agree. And their, and their voice does not exist. You have to really search for it.
0: Well, you've kind of anticipated one of my next questions. I was curious if there's a local response at the time, uh, there must be a level of confusion, maybe there's a local response of some sort.
1: I think the best you get with that is the book Polyphony is this incredible, huge book. And in the back of it, the technical exhibition happens, but it happens all over. And uh, and there's no way anyone saw all of it, except for maybe Susie. And then they do a conference in November of 93. And, and they do a, a, an abbreviated transcription of that conference in the book. So you really get to see them saying that this is fucking brand new this has never happened before you get this like really in the moment and there's even this bizarre moment where this guy La, uh laszlo Becca who's one of the original people that you know from the 80s uh who's running the the Mushernak, he's seen as like a like a holdover with progressive intentions and uh so he's still like a leading voice and he says some shit that blew my mind he's like you know I come to this conference, I've just come from uh, Bucharest and from Tallinn, because they clearly, you know, they were flying people out to create visibility. And they're, you know, just because it's it's folkloric, what we're talking about, this way in which information travels. And so they're flying all these witnesses out to see and be a part of it and to spread the word and, to, you know, to help the movement. And... Um, and so he says, I've just been in Bucharest and in Tallinn, and they're asking the same questions. They're they are also dealing with this new thing. And so it's, it's this, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm like so happy that there's that quote in Polyphony because it addresses the artificiality of this emergence. And so, but no real proper anything to tell you. There's, there's a guy, John Horvath, who's a, an amazing writer from the early 2000s. And he disappears in 2005. You never see anything from him again. And I have no idea what happened to him. But he writes a lot of super critical stuff of the meta view of the NGO and talks about the art stuff. And I think his opinion is really vital as a in the moment kind of opinion.
0: Why do you think so much of this story has disappeared? Is it lack of documentation? Is it... The transformation of the society at the time? Is it because the funding was pulled abruptly? But it seems like the story exists in pieces and fragments and a lot of your work in the last few years has been trying to rediscover this history and talk to the people involved and get primary sources because there is so little documentation. But why do you think it's so hard to find?
1: Yeah, and you got to understand that is an insane irony. That's an insane irony because their caveat to enter was we are here to help preserve this, uh, lost histories of the sixties, seventies and eighties. These were the disappearing histories of art of unofficial art that was going to never get the light of day in the closed society. And so they were there to help shine a light and that shining of that light would lay the bedrock for the present, which was the nineties, which was their work. And it would all be this building block of, you know, forward and, um, the reality of this, it's hard to really understand why this story is invisible. If we have to look at the the health of the network, of course, these, there's this period where the network starts to get shut down called the sunset years. It happens around 97, and, and apparently that was always in the cards that that was gonna happen. But I know that the war in Belgrade, I think had an uh, the, like the NATO intervention in Belgrade, I think had an effect on George's perception of what the network was doing. There was a general feeling that I think if we have to look at it from a business point of view, you're creating a, a thing that is a mascot essentially of the open society, and it's technically an elite club. That's that's kind of not what we were intending. So, you know, it's, you, the, the, the data comes in from, you know, R&D and they're like, well, maybe this isn't working. The product didn't launch, you know, so and then you have in the year 2000, the launch of the Euro and the, uh, the internet uh, dot com bubble, both of which crashed. And uh, George was a huge uh, gambler on the, both of those. Uh, he had an enormous hedge in both those worlds. So the SCCA is already m- more or less dead by 2000 when that shit happens. And so, why is it not uh, known? I don't know, dude. I think it's literally because the story sucks. It's a story about, technically, about the decolonization of these countries from the Soviet Union. And it's literally a story of colonization at the same time.
0: You mentioned in, I think, maybe the press release and also the catalog essay that the SCCA is in some ways the dawn of the curator as we know it. What are your thoughts on how this particular period of art and this funding structure shaped contemporary art curation?
1: When the object leaves the artist's mind and body, you know, that's the typical moment the curator finds it. I very confidently can say this history. Prior to this... Curators are aggregators and they're there to find stuff in the environment from the past, the recent past, through the present, and they kind of collect these things and they put them in a display, you know, in that musicological way. And they're just there trying to kind of like form a sentence about what the past was like through a theme. So that is determined by a pre-existing set of variables of of objects in space. And certainly it did happen that a curator or a benevolent, you know, uh, somebody would get an artist to make something for them specifically that of course happened, uh, you know, in documenta or when attitudes become formed. definitely there's a uh, moments of, of course, where artists are making stuff for a curator or for a theme, but never have you ever seen it where everything starts at point zero. I want to believe that these curators came up with these themes but I know that they are working in a think tank. And so you have this incredible control of cultural production as we know it from point zero. You know I mean in the previous iteration with the, with the assembling of the objects, yeah, that's also like kind of a divination of how we read culture and history. But there's something else happening here which is about the emergence of the energy from the source and having a control over it to do the you know the reading. And so in that sense, there's nothing like it previously.
0: When we talk about globalization and we talk about neoliberalism, this thing now comes hand in hand with the decline of living standards. It has to do with financializing society, usually to the detriment of most working people in the country. What are the living standards of the people in these countries at the time?
1: Look at a couple of different Gallup polls, whether life was better under communism, and see the ages of the people that Give that response, and you certainly will uh, understand that there's this nostalgia of there was a better time, and then there's this youthful belief in the future that happens for the my generation, and then I think the younger people question it. You know, I don't know how to. I can't speak for every single country, but what we are witnessing is the the breeding ground of neoliberalism is is imploding. Uh, all these places where this thing had the most powerful impact. Have fucking turned on it. Hungary, Poland, you know, Slovenia, they're all turning not just on Soros, but on the whole thing. So this is a, a strange thing to think about because we're I think there are people that hedged bets within liberalism and neoliberalism that made it and they came out of it and they won. But you, you're talking about so many different power structures that went on with the decentralization of stuff. A lot of it just went back into the fucking hands of oligarchs. You know, They took the richest guy in town, bought the railroad, the richest guy in town bought the newspaper, the richest guy in town bought whatever. And they have uh, this free ride to help with the betterment of society. Yeah, some people made it big. But I don't think when we talk about the common human and decline of living standards and what does it mean to have been on the ride on, on street level, I, I don't know how to answer that. I really don't. I just don't. I think that most people are very happy about the progressive reality that they live in. But I know that that view is also very controlled by the media. So if you go to these places, it's like in America. The cities are, of course, progressive or more progressive and the country's side is not. And so, you know, there's no quick answer. uh, But I do think that everyone is second guessing whatever the 90s meant.
0: When you hear the story, one is tempted to think that, against the backdrop of a dysfunctional Soviet Union, that the liberalization is probably, in most cases, a positive thing. That this is uh, this is beneficial to society, and maybe there's some weird art going on that people can't really explain, or are maybe not interested to understand. But in in general, versus the the chaos of the previous regime, most people are. I imagine happy with the direction that society is going. Those liberal freedoms are uh, valued and people enjoy them. Yeah, but that maybe does not apply in the 20-year arc since these centers have closed. And now most people in the advanced world are really suffering. And um, neoliberalism has been quite disastrous for most everywhere it's been implemented. So one is tempted to look back at the story and recognize the good intentions the relative good intentions that people had at the time, but also it laid the seeds, laid the groundwork for something that has really become uh, parasitic and now has a stranglehold on all of our political economies across the advanced world, where there's this ruthless implementation of austerity, there's the upward siphoning of wealth into a increasingly plutocratic and dense elite that now Soros is the avatar and figurehead of in conspiracy folklore. And uh, this story would seem to be the undocumented, untold origins of a lot of what is happening to cultural institutions now. I think um, in some ways, we are learning the role of art in society that previously was invisible. Uh, I think we've gone through a post-political period liberal democracy is the final form of human governance. A lot of these things were accepted as common sense. And now there's a populist backlash, which takes the form of right-wing nationalism, which uh, is, is forcing questions about the value of art and what its role in society is. Against the backdrop of the Soviet Union, do you think Soros's involvement was a good thing at the time? Was it a net positive for those societies?
1: You know, if you're coming at this thinking, is George Soros a bad person or is he a good person? Certainly, you're going to find an answer to both of those. And uh, and this is about influence. You know, this is about the very tangible materiality of influence as a, a undeniable phenomenon that creates growth. the The way in which I personally see George Soros, in my heart, I think it's a good thing. You know, I think like I I believe he had the best of intentions, and I believe he's got a fucking vision. Now, based on everything I've learned about post-colonial theory and all the shit that like was what you know i think he wanted us to learn about uh i kind of started to put a mirror on it and i learned the pitfalls of this argument so early on you cannot be saying is this a good thing or a bad thing it's uh if you have to avoid those because that is the trap and that's always the trap like a spell
0: we're at such an unprecedented moment in The development of the advanced world, of neoliberalism, of dysfunctional capitalism, uh, globalization, and the role of art is becoming very clear. And I think you've set up a really unique and fascinating experiment here to find out exactly what kind of influence art wields. We're going to find Mm -hmm. out when this exhibition opens, we see its reception in the press, in the public, in the art world. Uh, all of that will then be crystallized in a way that is impossible to anticipate, but will provoke all of these questions. And I think the art world will have to ask itself what is our role in all of this? What do we want our role to be? Because now we have to make an active choice. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to look into it. And I'm, I'm you know, Josh, really what this is about is we are at a precipice. We need some real chaos in order to form some new language. And, uh, and there will be new language that comes out of this. And I've done my best on social media to create terminology, to visualize previously unspoken phenomenon and, uh, and help you see influence in different ways. So I think it's a way to, you know, bring people into this story and also my, the consistency of my work and what I've been doing my whole life and know that this isn't just a stupid fucking conspiracy theory from a wing nut. We're going to see the
0: influence. That's it there. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron, for making the time to talk with me. This has been a really fascinating, enlightening story. I look forward to the exhibition. So, thank you.